overwhelming evidence that the state did present to the jury in the case against Darley Rotier that would lead to a guilty verdict followed by the death penalty any way you look at it. On January 6, 1997, the trial of Darley Rotier versus the state of Texas began. During the prosecution's opening statement made by Greg Davis, Darley was described as a self-centered, materialistic woman who was cold enough to murder two of her precious children. The prosecution called several expert witnesses who produced sufficient evidence to secure a guilty verdict. The prosecution also presented damaging evidence to support their claims that Darley brutally murdered her children in cold blood that fateful night. However, Darley had her fair share of character witnesses who went against how the prosecution was depicting her. Family, friends, and neighbors of Darley described her as a kind and generous doting mother who would never have harmed her children. Darlene is not a violent person. She did not have any mental problems. She loved her children. But there are things that come into question on Darley's parenting style that make it seem like she would have been a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The blood. When authorities walked in on the gruesome scene, it was best described as a bloodbath, like the ones you see in the movies. There was blood everywhere. On the doors, the walls, on furniture, the floor, in the kitchen, and into the garage. What was puzzling about the scene was that the blood trail did a dead stop in front of the garage window where you would expect it to continue on since it was the assumed exit. I mean, considering that Darley claims that an intruder was the killer and that she saw with her own eyes a figure disappear through the garage. I think it is mighty strange that the blood stopped right there. If there was so much blood throughout the house... Shouldn't there be blood somewhere outside of the window? Speaking of that, the window screen had to cut into a perfect T. There was a cut screen that was intact on the window. It was cut in a T. But there was no blood anywhere on the windowsill or outside of the window. There was also no blood found on Routier's very white privacy fence either. So common sense will tell you that this is next to impossible without a cleanup or that's just not the way the story actually unfolded. Lots of uh, blood in the kitchen sink and cleanup where water had run and they found blood down in the drains, which is an indication uh, that there was cleanup going on. Or is this all just a big misunderstanding? 
Besides the cut window screen, there was Darley's blood-soaked nightshirt that had a distinctive blood splatter, which allegedly indicated she had lifted a weapon up and over her shoulders and over her head, as well as several knife wipe patterns, a single broken wine glass found on the floor, the butcher knife that was taken from the routier's kitchen block, a bread knife that contained fiber rods from what matched the rods on the window screen that was cut in half, a bloody sock that was found in the alley 75 yards from the home that contained blood from both of the boys and DNA from Darley, blood droplets in the kitchen near the sink that appeared to be from someone who had been standing versus running, three fingerprints, and an overturned vacuum with blood stains on the handle at an 80-degree angle. If Darley was leaning over the vacuum, that's what they would show. And droplets at the bottom and underneath near the wheel. Now, the blood on the floor revealed a wheel impression in the blood that was not consistent with Darley's story of her running past as she stated to police. There was a broken wine glass on the kitchen floor. There was also a vacuum cleaner that was found near the sink as if it had been flung there in a struggle. Her bloody footprints were found under the broken glass and the vacuum cleaner also, which was indication that those items were placed there after she had walked around the kitchen. We will be breaking down the evidence in parts in separate episodes. But this episode will be discussing the blood evidence in great detail because there was a lot, and I mean a lot. Now, in addition to the massive amount of blood at the scene, there were three fingerprints collected. One was a bloody latent print that was lifted from the coffee table in the living room. The second one was found on a door in the utility room, and the third was a latent print that was below the bloody one on the door. Now, there is a lot of controversy surrounding the print on the coffee table. There were several expert witnesses that testified for the prosecution who all agreed that Darley's right ring finger could not be identified nor excluded as the source of the bloody print on the glass table, but did suggest that the print lifted might have possibly been left by one of the boys. But when looking at the print with the naked eye, it just seemed too big to be a child's print. Prints from the boys were never obtained by investigators or the two medical examiners who conducted the autopsies, and there was never an explanation as to why. The children were later exhumed, but due to the condition of the bodies, only partial prints were able to be collected. Apparently, the boys were laid to rest holding hands in a clasped position, so pretty much their hands were fused together at this point. Measurements of their prints were taken. Dermatoglyphics analysis was conducted by Richard Jantz, who later explained how hard it was to obtain print patterns from melted bodies. Sad to say, what was thought to be a heartfelt idea to place the boys together for eternity turned out to be a hurdle in the path to prove the print. We had to have them zoomed and have a specialist come in to take their fingerprints because they put print in them, but they didn't fingerprint The purpose of this exam was to address the question of whether the print was made by a child or by an adult. The boys were buried together, holding hands. 
And so where the hands were together, the vault had flooded, and that totally destroyed the fingerprints. For the exam, Richard compared the dimensions or measurements of the prints taken from a collection of the dermatoglyphic prints of adults and children. The fingerprint in question consisted of a whorl pattern. For those of you that do not know what a whorl fingerprint is, it is best described as a pattern in which the central ridges on the skin turn through at least a complete circle. Whorls compromise about 30 to 35% of fingerprint patterns found on the human fingertips and thumbs. They look like a set of rings as seen on like a tree stump. Even the smallest set of fingers display these special markings. Now, Devin had a whorl pattern on one of his right fingers, and Damon had a whorl on his right thumb. The dimensions of the latent print found on the glass table was compared against Devin's finger and Damon's tiny thumbs, and it was determined that flexon creases, which represents the location of firmer attachment of the skin to underlying structures, was almost two millimeters less than the print obtained from Devin, and over three millimeters less for Damon. Everything in this world is made up of matter. To break this down for us everyday folk, the latent print was not consistent with a young child, as the average measurement from core to flexon crease in children ages four to six was 9.21. An adult male, when compared, is 14.285, and an adult female is 12.306. The actual bloody measurement was 12.6 millimeters and appeared to be more consistent with an adult female. These facts were actually proven false. Now, new updated testing has excluded all members of the Routier family, including investigators and medical personnel. The new information, some say, goes back to the defense's initial assumption that there must be an intruder who came into the home and committed the murders. Darling was here because the screen tried to make it look like an intruder had come into the house. Now, here is your reasonable doubt. Some of the tests performed decades ago were inaccurate and now outdated. So having all the evidence retested would allow the truth to finally come out. I know the truth. I know what really happened. I know that somebody else did this. So if I'm put to death, I'll leave this world with a free conscience. So the question of the hour to ask is, who had a legit reason to be in the home to leave a fingerprint in the victim's blood? So Darley is claiming that she was attacked on the couch. Can you imagine waking up out of your sleep with a man attacking you? One of her stories claimed that she woke up to a man straddling her and that her throat was slashed, severing her carotid artery, almost killing her. The prosecution's theory is that Darley was never attacked on the couch, but that she cut her own throat in the kitchen over the sink. We will explore this theory later on. Now, per Officer David Main's testimony during trial, there was blood on the armrest of the couch and on a maroon pillowcase next to blood dripping down the front of the couch. There has allegedly been some talk about Darley's blood not being on the pillow. None of Darley's blood was found on the actual couch, but again, there was some blood found on her pillowcase that was later identified as hers. There was also other blood stains that were not tested, so can we really say that none of this blood was Darley's? No. 
there was also a single bloody handprint that was believed to be belonging to one of the boys that was found on the carpet next to the couch, along with a distinct outline of a bloody knife. He saw his small bloody hand as he pulled himself up. And she had to go finish him off. In her brief for DNA retesting, Darley's appeal attorney claims that the interests of justice and the fact that new testing methods are now available dictate testing additional stains, which could reveal the DNA of the unidentified intruder that have not been previously tested on the pillow. That could finally place another person at the scene. At the time that this case was tried, no case had ever had more DNA samples tested in it in this state. I mean, we had more than 100 DNA samples tested. We literally were able to create a DNA map for that home in that crime scene. Of all those 100 DNA samples, we had zero, none, that were unidentified. All of those samples could be linked to one of three people, either Devon, Damon, or Darley Routier. There's nothing to indicate that anybody else was ever in that home. Now, why Darley's defense team decided not to get the pillowcase with the unidentified blood retested back in 1996 when the technology was available at their will is a question that her defense has never answered and quite frankly, perplexing. Could it mean that her defense knew that it would just incriminate Darley even further? The work that's being done in the case to prove my innocence, it's not going to just prove that I did not murder Damon. It's going to prove that I did not murder either of my children. Now, what is quite obvious is that they are still sticking with the story that an intruder was the perpetrator who committed this heinous crime and are keeping the evidence as it was. So as not to complicate things further with blood that cannot be explained away. Darley's blood-soaked Victoria's Secret nightshirt had also created quite a buzz. Tom Bevel, expert witness for the prosecution, who also was the co-author of a textbook on blood pattern analysis, stated that the blood on her shirt was not only Darley's blood, but Damon's and Devin's blood as well, mixed in. He further stated that the boy's blood landed on top of Darley's blood. Experts determined this via bloodstain pattern analysis. It was Mr. Bevel's job to unravel the scene by the blood. The forensic evidence showed that drops of blood on the back of the shirt were from her two sons. There was a blood spatter expert who determined that he felt the blood from Devin and Damon had been deposited there by Castle or a knife. And he stated that the droplets were large and circular in shape, which told the story that those stains were deposited by someone standing still or walking very slowly, not running as Darley recounted. Running would have caused these droplets to be more elliptical in shape with a tail at the end, indicating the direction in which the person is moving. Blood stain pattern analysis, BPA, is the interpretation of blood stains at a crime scene in order to recreate the actions that cause the bloodshed. Expert witnesses claim that the blood drops found on the back of Darley's shirt were in fact cast off patterns from swinging the knife and it came from a person who was right-handed. A cast off pattern is a blood stain pattern formed when blood is released or thrown from a blood bearing moving object and reenactments of the knife being wielded 
seem to back up this pattern because it came out exactly the same. FBI behavioral specialist Alan C. Brantley conducted his own tests and found that the blood in the back of her upper right shoulder was consistent with the movement of the knife that was bloodstained. When a weapon is drawn backward, the blood is coming off the end of the knife, and when it is upward in motion, the blood drop will point in an upward direction, which indicates there was a bloody object in Darley's right hand, proving she was the perpetrator. A test was performed to disprove Darley's story of where she found the knife. Tom Bevel conducted the test dropping the blood-soaked knife straight down and even on its side, falling sideways on its handle. And every time, this knife left a large outline on the kitchen floor, just that it has on the carpet. There were absolutely no blood stains showing the knife had been laid or dropped anywhere on the kitchen floor. I turned on the light. When I got to the utility room, there was a knife. And I picked up the knife, put the knife on the counter. At this point, I started screaming for my husband, Darren, who was upstairs with our baby. Expert forensics audio analysis Barry Dickey was assigned to analyze Darley's 911 call to match with the blood evidence story. He stated that Darley had moved from at least three different rooms in the house in a rapid fashion, and this contradicted the story Darley and Darren told police. Police on the scene reported they believed the only wet towel Darley was holding to her neck would have been the one she used to clean up blood and stage the crime scene. A luminal test was conducted because of this report, and the results were shocking. Luminol is a liquid that, when sprayed correctly on an area where blood has been removed, lights up as if it were glowing. Luminol light footprints in front of the sink were found to be Darley's, and forensics can now tell these have been wiped up. On the sink's cabinets, there were visual blood dripping, but the luminol showed that a lot more blood had been cleaned up on those cabinets, and blood drops on top of blood drops were discovered. All DNA testing found it belonged to Darley Rotier. Now, the defense obviously disputed these claims. However, they failed to put expert witnesses Terry Labor and Bart Epstein on the stand. These two gentlemen both worked for the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension Forensic Science Laboratory. Per Terry Labor's affidavit, signed and notarized on July 11, 2002, he stated the following. Based on my blood splatter analysis experience, for the theory that direct hits of Darley Routier blood being splattered from her stab wound precisely covered each blood spatter of her two sons, Damon and Devin, to have been correct and would have required an extremely unlikely sequence of events. My preliminary analysis of the shirt Darley Lynn Routier was wearing indicated only minimal area of blood splatter and the correct critical areas of spatter were not subject to genetic testing. Genetic testing should have been conducted on those blood-stained areas of Darley Lynn Routier's nightshirt. In addition, a microscopic examination should have been performed to determine the source of cuts observed on the left side of the neck of the nightshirt. 
I find it strange that the defense knowing this pertinent information could possibly help their case. Why not utilize this? According to Terry Labor, he stated that he was pretty much ghosted by the defense, and his theory was that it would cost too much to have him testify. He said this wasn't unusual for cases that he had worked in the past, and that it all had to do with money. But to this day, he has never waved from his educated research. This is Killer Lashes with Tati and Asha. And stay tuned to next week's episode. But before we leave, what we want to know is... Why would the blood not tell the correct story of what happened that tragic night? Was Darley railroaded because the evidence was just too difficult to unravel? Why would her own defense not go to the ends of the earth to prove her innocence? If all the evidence is presented correctly in the future... Will the puzzle finally come together and reveal the true killer? All we want to know is, what would drive a mother to kill her own children? Until then, Killer Lashes signing off. I remember my legs just giving out from under me when I saw Evan and Damon in the castle. They looked like they were sleeping, but they were so cold. I remember just touching them kissing them and talking to them. It just just didn't seem, it just didn't seem real. It just seemed 